It's easy to time travel in the old world. In England, the ancient Romans left a vast and practical legacy. They went about building roads, the Romans, so they built, get this, 10,000 miles of roads in Britain. Wander around Turkey, and you'll stumble onto evidence of one ancient civilization after another. The powerful Ottoman Empire built some of the grandest buildings in Istanbul, including an ornate palace that just about bankrupted them. It's spectacular. Baccarat crystal staircases, largest crystal chandeliers of the world, biggest hand-woven carpets of the world. And a Palestinian from Jerusalem tells us how he got beyond anger to work at breaking down the walls that divide us. Us is really whoever is willing to work for peace, for justice, for coexistence. And them is the people we're trying to convince to join us. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The news these days can get you down as we hear of new conflicts arising and old ones that keep burning around the world. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, a Palestinian Muslim from Jerusalem suggests that crossing borders might be our best chance for peace. It's an important year in Turkey as they celebrate the centennial of the Turkish Republic, which replaced six centuries of rule by Ottoman monarchs. We'll look for evidence of Ottoman Turkey in just a bit. Let's start the hour searching for signs of Roman rule in England as far back as the first century A.D. Lorraine Denine guides visitors across the English countryside, sometimes to places that time seems to have forgotten. Hi, Lorraine. It's great to be here. So you're a guide in England. What part of England are you from? I live in the Cotswolds. Now that's Gloucestershire, isn't it? Yes, and you know what they say about Gloucestershire. If you dig your back garden long enough, you will dig up some Roman remains. Does that actually happen? It does happen, yes. In fact, very close to where I live, there's a very nice two-mile walk through some woods, and there is a Roman villa. There's the remains of a Roman villa, and there's a mosaic there, Yeah, and it's not been investigated by archaeologists. What's the name of that one? It's called Spoonley Wood. Spoonley Wood? Because isn't there a place called Chedworth? Chedworth Villa is a wonderful Roman villa. Because when you're not talking about a away. villa in Gloucestershire and mosaics, I thought Chedworth, and that's famous. That's famous, and yes. You've got one that's not famous just yes. next door. Um, there's a beautiful mosaic there, or part of a mosaic, uh-huh. and it's just protected by the local farmer who covers it up with some old fertilizer bags. So that is the sort of thing you can find. In... There's so much. In fact, Roman coins are quite cheap in the, in yes. the little flea markets. You can yeah. buy Roman pennies for a yes. dollar or two each, I think. Yes, people are always digging them up. I understand when people were going to go into a town, they would bury their coins outside before they went in so they wouldn't be stolen or something. And then if they did get knocked off, their coins would stay there for 2,000 years until somebody with a metal detector finds them. That that seems to have happened through the ages, yes. Not just the Roman times, but the Anglo-Saxons did that as well. Oh, right. Yeah. So give us a sense of what was Roman Britain. Well, the Romans arrived in 43 AD. They'd been there before. Julius Caesar came in 55 BC, but he came to trade, basically. Okay. And then it was 43 AD when the Emperor Claudius decided he was going to conquer Britain. And there's a huge debate over why the Romans came. They didn't really need to conquer Britain. It was across water. Yeah. But Claudius wasn't particularly well liked when he came to power. So he thought he'd go and conquer somewhere to prove to Ah. the people that he was worthy. It is interesting because the Romans would have had to cross, obviously, by boat, the narrowest part, and they'd get to Dover. 
Yes. And then when they got there, they built a, a lighthouse on the cliff. And, this, and the lighthouse is inside of the famous Dover Castle from where the, the Battle of Britain was uh, uh, fought. I know. Uh, that's weird, isn't it? The Roman lighthouse is still there. Right next um, to where we were fighting Germany in, in, uh, in the last generation. Absolutely, yeah. And then they went about building roads, the Romans. So they built, get this, 10,000 miles of roads in Britain in 400 years. The 400 years they were there, 10,000 miles of roads. And to this day, when you have a very straight road, there's a good probability that that was a, originally a Roman road because they're kind of engineers. The boss would just draw a straight line and say, build yep. this road. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did deviate occasionally when they came mm-hmm. to really bad obstructions. But to this day, um, many of them are still used by us. So we have near us in the Cotswolds, we have the Foss Way, uh-huh. which went from Exeter up to Lincoln, uh-huh. uh, built by the Romans. And obviously it's tarmac now. But Today, we still use it. Yeah, and if, if you want to find a road that's not used today, there are, are actually opportunities to see Roman pavement stones that still have the chariot grooves yes. in them. Yes. Where would you likely see something um, like that? There are some in North Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. There are some near Manchester on the Moors. Uh-huh. And there's one in Sussex as well that I know of. It's amazing to be walking in, in a moor. It's just a open expanse, and you come across a little sign that says Roman Road. And you look down and there it is, the pavement stones. Yeah, there's one in the Lake District on High Street, which is a mountain that's um, over 2,000 feet. We call them mountains. Right. And there's a Roman road that goes right across the top. To think that 2,000 years ago, the Romans had to build a road to that next valley and they went over that pass. Exactly. Lorraine, when I'm thinking about Britannia, that was the Roman word for Britain, right? Yes. What are some names of, Roman names of towns that we might recognize today? Well, the obvious one is Londinium, mm-hmm. which is now London. Yeah. Um, near me, there's Sirencester today was Corinium. Okay. Um, and Chester was Diva. And then Bath was originally named after some god or something Aquasulis, like that? yes. Aqu- what is Aquasulis? Um, it's the waters of Sulis. Sulis was the pagan god. Oh, I see. But it, it related to mineral bath water or, yes. or um, you know, therapeutic water. Absolutely, So 2,000 yes. years ago, Romans were going to bath for the therapeutic waters, and even in the last century, people have gone to bath for the therapeutic waters. Yeah, and, and you can still go to bath for the therapeutic waters. Lorraine Deneen lives in the scenic Cotswolds, and she's our guide to Roman sites you find scattered all across the English countryside right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Margaret's calling us from Toronto at 877-333-7425. So, Margaret, have you gone looking for Roman sites in England? Um, Yes, I have, Rick. Um, Ever since I uh, read the novel Eagle of the Ninth in Grade 9, I've been interested in seeing Roman ruins in Scotland and England. And one thing I'd like to do is to walk Hadrian's Wall. So I was hoping that you could... Um, tell me how I can work this into my travels in Scotland and England. Uh, Lorraine, Hadrian's Wall, it's, what, 70 miles across or something like that? 73 miles, I think, yes. But you don't want to walk the whole thing if you're a quick tourist. Uh, wh- where would you go to get a good sense of, first of all, what is Hadrian's Wall and where do you best experience it? Okay, Hadrian's Wall was um, the furthest outpost of the Roman Empire north, built by Hadrian himself. He actually came in 122, I think, to oversee construction of the wall. 
And the, there's a huge debate over what it was for, whether it was for defence, whether it was just a boundary marker, whether it was to keep people in. But uh, a lot of it is still there. Fascinating to go and see how they actually it's built the wall. quite a structure, though. What, 70 miles long? It's got a, a little fort every mile, a mile castle? Yeah, there were mile castles. Roman miles were slightly shorter, so there are 80-mile castles. 80-mile castles. And then... It's wide enough to actually, uh, I think a chariot could like race across the top of it from one castle to the other? Yes, the width varied quite a bit, but Uh at least 10 feet wide it was. And in places it was 20 feet high. That was a big undertaking. It was a hell of a wall. And and Hadrian traveled all the way from... Hadrian, you'd think he'd have better things to do than to go to the north of England 2,000 years ago and watch a wall being built. Absolutely. But if if you're going to visit Hadrian's Wall... There are lots of forts you can see along the wall. The best place to go, really, I think, is Vindolanda, which is just south of the wall, predates the wall. It's a massive archaeological site with an amazing museum where they've dug up some wonderful things, including postcards, if you like, Hmm. written on slivers of wood. They've dug them out of the mud there. And they're the only examples, really, of handwriting outside Rome. In fact, they've got the only example of female handwriting anywhere in the world. From that time. From that time, Ah. yeah. Roman Vindolandia, that that was uh, more than a mile cross. That was a real fort, wasn't it? Massive fort. It was a big fort up there. And if you want to actually walk on the wall, there's many places where you have a little car pull out and people get a couple of scenic shots, you know. But if you get out and actually walk, you have a, a much more rich experience, I think, to get away from the people and you're just in the middle of nowhere with this wall stretching in front of you and the wind howling. What's a good section of the wall to walk? Well, the bit around Hexham, I think. Hexham. Yes, there is a little sort of hopper bus that goes up and down. Ah. So you can hop on the bus, go to the next fort or mile castle, get out, have a walk, and then hop back on the bus a again. hopper bus to see the wall. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, hop on and hop off, yes. Why not? So it, it accommodates people that want to hike for a while and then hop on the bus and go back to their bed and breakfast. Yes, Yes, and near indeed. the bed and breakfast would be a nice pub that serves food and a nice cozy place to drink a beer later on. There are lots of pubs along the route and lots of bed and breakfasts as well, yes. Margaret, that sounds like a pretty good destination for your next trip. It sounds great and I've taken lots of notes. <laughs> All right. Thanks for calling. Okay, thank you. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lorraine Deneen and she's a guide from England. We're talking about Roman archaeology in England that we might encounter in our travels. You know, it's really interesting when you think about ancient Rome and, and biblical history and, uh, and I understand merchants from the Holy Land traveled all the way to southern England. Uh, can you tell a little bit about, people think the Holy Grail is actually in England. Well, yes, some people do. Um, we know that there was trade with the Middle East, with North Africa, way before the Romans came, basically, because tin was there. So tin was a very important thing and they found it in Cornwall in the yes. southwest of England. yes. Now, uh, legend has it that um, Jesus's uncle, or at least a family friend, was a merchant and maybe a tin trader, so he could well have come to Cornwall, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, okay. Yes, so Joseph of Arimathea could have come to Cornwall. He was the man most likely to have had the chalice from the Last Supper, the legend goes. The chalice which had a little bit of Jesus's blood in it? Um, Allegedly, yes. Allegedly, okay. So he could well have had the chalice with him when he came to Cornwall. And uh, legend has it that he travelled to Glastonbury. He dropped the chalice and it rolled down the hill 
and got lost in the well. And there is the holy well in Glastonbury where the water runs red. Glastonbury, it's, it's a fascinating place to check out. And it's another dimension of that idea that when you scratch England, you find ancient Rome. Yes, and uh, as I said at the start, Julius Caesar came uh, in 55 BC because Rome was trading with Britain. They didn't need to conquer it because they were already trading with it. And, uh, of course, the Romans came to a place on the Thames River and founded a city that became actually a pretty important city, Londinium. If you go to London today, Lorraine, what will you find that is uh, actually a souvenir of those Roman days? If you visit the Tower of London, on your way out of the tube station, you will walk past a piece of a Roman wall. It's called London Wall, and there's a massive chunk of the original London wall built by the Romans. A 2,000-year-old wall in the middle of London today. Another reason to go to that exciting city. Lorraine Deneen, thank you so much for giving us an appreciation of one more layer of Roman Britain. It's a pleasure. When he was a boy, Aziz Abu Sirah and his brother used to throw rocks at Israeli cars from their Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem. That was until his brother died from injuries after being arrested. Today, Aziz organizes peace-building tours to conflict zones around the world. His TED Talk on how tourism can build connections for understanding has been viewed more than a million times. And Aziz joins us in just a bit to tell us his story. But first, we'll get tips for touring the sites of Ottoman Turkey a hundred years after their empire fell. It's Travel with Rick Steves. They're gearing up to celebrate the centennial of the Turkish Republic this year. As a land that's built atop major civilizations that date back millennia, it's easy to imagine the ghosts of those ancient Hittites, Phrygians, Lydians, Romans, and Byzantine Greeks almost anywhere you travel in Turkey. The Ottoman Empire ruled Anatolia and beyond for some 600 years. After it fell, the secular Turkish Republic was formed in 1923, with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk as its first president. We're joined right now by Istanbul-based tour guide Lali Sermon Aran to help us find evidence of the empire the Ottomans left behind. Thank you for inviting me, Rick, and merhaba. Merhaba. Merhaba, Lali. Tell us the Ottoman state, basically. When did it start? When did it finish? What was it? The Ottoman history gets back us to the 13th century A.D., Towards the end of the Ottoman century, the Ottoman dynasty formed, and they struggled with other Turkish dynasties trying to set a sure foot on Asia Minor, and finally they became the leader of those Turkish dynasties, unifying them under their flag, hence founded the Ottoman state, which turned into the Ottoman Empire, which was one of the major powers of the world in the 16th century A.D., continued till the 19th century A.D. Decline started in the 18th century, continued into the 19th century. Finally, by the World War I, it collapsed. 
Okay, so basically it started around 1300, and it was a a, a tribe of fierce, strong warrior-type Muslim people that came in. From Central Asia. From Central Asia. They took over Constantinople, which was the capital of the Byzantine Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, established their state from there. It peaked in the 1600s and lasted until the 20th century, falling with a lot of uh, dynasties after World War I. Yes, we're talking about a history of 600 years. So much of what you see when you go to Istanbul today would be from the Ottoman period. Monuments. Monuments, Huge monuments from the Ottoman period. Who's the major figure of the Ottoman period? If there's one guy we got to understand, and, and what would we see in Istanbul to reflect uh, his rule? I guess that would be Suleiman the Magnificent. You call it the Suleiman the Magnificent. We call it Suleiman the Lawgiver, since he established an Ottoman Codex for law, trying to be as fair as possible to every subject living under his flag. Now, when did he rule, and what physical souvenirs of his reign did he leave us today? As he reigned for 46 years in 1500s. 1500s, okay. Yes, and during his reign, the imperial architect was a brilliant, brilliant man, architect Sinan, whom we see as a counterpart for Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. Both of these men, Suleiman the Magnificent and Sinan, have a stamp on the Turkish Ottoman Renaissance. Now, that's interesting because we got... Uh, Francois Premier, we got Henry VIII, we got the Medici, we got Michelangelo. All got, of the you know, same age. 16th, all the class 16th of, century yeah. was an awesome age. This is the class of 1500, and a lot of times yes. we forget that Suleiman the Magnificent was part of that with his Michelangelo or Leonardo. Brilliant Sinon, architect. S-I-N-O-N. Now, as a Westerner, when I go to Istanbul, I'm just so um, thrilled to go into the mosques, but I don't have a very good ability to appreciate fine mosque architecture from just mosque architecture. When you step into a mosque by Sinon, the Leonardo of Mm -hmm. Muslim architects, what do you see? What distinguishes the great mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent designed by Sinon from more forgettable mosques? To start with, I can say, I, I can summarize it with one word, grandeur. He was able to build huge domes without pillars supporting. He hid the pillars in the walls. Okay. So the domes looked like as if they were floating on air. Hmm. Now, how did he do that? Hiding the pillars in the side walls. Okay, so these, that would be and you step he, in and you're just overcome by the wonder of it. Yes, and he didn't invent it. He inherited it from the previous Byzantine Empire that occupied Istanbul. Because Hagia Sophia, which was the biggest dome in the Western world for centuries, yes. preceded Suleiman yes. by, by many Hagia centuries. Hagia Sophia, or Hagia Sophia, was uh, the sample in front of Sinan. Now, that dates 800 years before Sinan or something like this, doesn't it? Uh, about a thousand years. It's easy to under underestimate the importance of Istanbul. I mean, for I always like to think that for 400 years, Istanbul was the leading city in Christendom. Europeans, even though they had no direct contact, they looked to Constantinople as the sort of the the Oz of their civilization. Mm -hmm. And for another 400 years, under the Ottoman rule, it was the leading city of the Islam world. There's not many cities that can make this claim. Yes, yes. We're talking about Istanbul. We're talking about Ottoman Turkey. We're joined by Lali Sermon Aran, who comes from Constantinople, or Istanbul, as we say now. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Eric's on the phone in Algonquin, Illinois. Eric, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. I'll be returning to Istanbul in a few weeks, but this will be the first trip there for my wife and 10-year-old daughter. I was wondering if you'd give me some advice on some things that could really make the Ottoman experience come alive for a child. 
10 years old. So 10 years old. So bringing a 10-year-old daughter to Istanbul, what would be a fun thing to enliven her experience and gain an appreciation of the Ottoman? I suppose she would be most thrilled with sites that are more visually awarding. And I can count the Dolmabahce Palace, the Ottoman Palace along the Bosphorus, the Mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Blue Mosque. And if you ever have a chance to go to the aqueducts that were built by Sinan, Suleiman the Magnificent's architect in the 16th century, that might also be an interesting place for her to see. Describe the aqueducts. In the 16th century, they renewed all of the water system of the capital city, which was falling apart. People needed water for a survival. So Suleiman the Magnificent asked Sinan to rebuild it from the very beginning. Sinan built mighty aqueducts from the forests surrounding the city, channeling the water into the fountains, the monumental fountains that are in the city. And some are intact, and they can be seen in day trips out of Istanbul. Eric, have you traveled with your daughter to countries like Turkey before? No, this will be your first trip. Boy, you're diving right into the intensity of it all by going to Turkey. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to it very much. And your daughter might very much enjoy the performance of the military army band. Okay. Where would that be? That's made in the military museum daily around 3 p.m. You just need to get a ticket. There is no separate admission for the band, and you, anybody can watch it. Eric, uh, Lali mentioned the Domabachi Palace. This really is, uh, you know, people like to go to the Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna or Versailles in Paris or the Royal Palace in Madrid. This is right up there with those palaces, and uh, it's often overlooked by tourists because it's up the Bosporus a little ways. And do you still need to make an appointment to go there, or can you just drop in? It's suggested that they make an appointment, and it's easy to do through the website of the palace. You can do it ahead of time. Describe the palace to us just briefly. What what century is it from? It's a 19th century palace, uh-huh. and it's heavily under the European influence, European architecture. But the Ottomans, during their decline, wanted to show off the world they still have the money, they still have the might, they still have the power that their ancestors had, therefore channeled everything that they had in their power for the construction of this palace. It's spectacular. Baccarat crystal staircases, largest crystal chandeliers of the world, biggest hand-woven carpets of the world, and you can all see them in the palace. The palace is kept with the original furniture. So this is a palace that was actually built during the decline of the Ottomans, and then yes. to sort of prove that they're not on the decline, yes. it was over-the-top sort of It was a, a show-off. How do you spell Domabachi? D-O-L-M-A-B-A-H-C-E. Okay, Dolmabachi. It is the big palace, uh, Eric, in, in Istanbul, and it's just a bit away from the center, actually facing, you can see it from the cruises up and down the Bosporus. Yes, and it's facing Asia. It's located on Europe facing Asia. Now, Eric has a chance to take his daughter to the Blue Mosque. Tell us about the experience of going into the Blue Mosque. Are all the tourists welcome? Uh, what sensitivities should we have when we visit the Blue Mosque? That's a good question, Rick. Thank you. Uh, everybody is welcome in the mosque, so as the Blue Mosque. The only times they'll not let you in are the set times of the prayer, which are five times a day. Those times are only reserved for the worshippers. Other than that, you can go in at any time. Uh, Men and women both are expected to cover their shoulders and knees, and women are expected to cover the hair. This does not have to be in a conventional way that a Muslim woman does. It's the sign of respect. Even a baseball cap would do it. And there's scarves right there that people can grab on the way in. Yes, normally. I recommend you to bring your own scarf. I mean, don't wear something that hundreds of other people are wearing. Okay. Yes, but they're available handy. 
And regardless of the sex and the age, everybody takes shoes off, removes shoes going into a mosque. Eric, I hope that's helpful. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Thanks for your call, and good luck uh, exposing your, your uh, young student to the wonders of our world. Thank you. Lali Sermon Iran is offering tips for touring Ottoman Turkey on Travel with Rick Steves. Lali and her husband, Tan, operate SRM tours from Istanbul with a number of themed tours in Turkey and the Middle East. They also co-author the Rick Steves Guidebook to Istanbul and operate Cappadocia Estates. It's a boutique hotel in Mustafa Pasha. Their website is srmtravel.com. And George is on the line in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Hi, George. Thanks for your call. Hey there, Rick, and uh, marhaba. 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 I have a comment, actually, because I'm a uh, ceramic artist that specializes in tile and mosaic. And I spent a week with my wife uh, in Istanbul in August visiting a good friend of ours who is, is a native there. Her name is Serpil. And we saw so much wonderful tile, as well as some mosaic in Istanbul. And it was a thrill for me, both uh, personally as well as professionally, to see uh, this wonderful tile that was actually, I think, mostly created in the uh, uh, Turkish city of Iznik. Iznik, right? Yes. Famous for its tiles. Now, George, as a ceramic artist yourself, were you struck by the fact that there were no images on the tiles but just uh, design? Yeah, that's generally true, although not always true. There's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a wonderful tile pavilion at the uh, Archaeological Museum, and some of the tile does have some faces on it. Okay. And, uh, I'm not quite sure yes. why or yes. what the difference is. But generally in Muslim art, you would not have... You know, like I was struck by when you go into the Hagia Sophia, in a Christian church, you would have a big statue of St. Peter and another big statue of um, the Virgin Mary, and in a in a mosque, you'd have a big banner with a artistically designed lettering that says Allah or Muhammad, but not the images of those people. That's right. But the mosques are great places to see. You know these oh, whole yeah. walls of tile, just uh, and pattern on pattern. Uh, it's uh, really a thrilling experience. So you would recommend the city of Iznik, I Z N I K, for people who really want to see this this tile art form. I think that the tile is still being made there. George, we're just running out of time, and, and I'd love while you're on the phone to get Lolly's take on, because she shook her head no when I said Iznik for tiles. Lolly, if you're looking for some sightseeing must-sees, what would you have in a list of four or five Ottoman sites or cities or, or places to appreciate? In the, means of tiles. No, in, in means of Ottoman culture and art. Istanbul, Bursa, and Edirne. The period. three big cities. Yes. The, the capitals of the yes. Ottoman. Yes, yes. Istanbul, Bursa, B-U-R-S-A, and Edirne. E-D-I-R-N-E, in Thrace, which would be the European part of Turkey. Yes, bordering Bulgaria. Before the Ottomans conquered Constantinople, they had capital cities. One capital city for Asian provinces, one capital city for the European provinces. After the conquest of Istanbul, they were combined in one capital city, Constantinople or Istanbul. Wow. George, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks, Rick, and thanks, Lowy. Thank you. Happy travels. Lolly, explain Iznik is, is a famous word for people appreciating uh, Ottoman tiles, but is it famous because you go there to see the tiles, or that's where the tiles came from and you see them in palaces in Bursa? Or Neither nor. Okay, what's the story Neither of Iznik? Uh, to start with, I can say that Iznik is biblical Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was signed okay. or discussed over. And in the, in the height of the Ottoman period, it became the manufacturing center for the Iznik tiles that were commissioned by the Ottoman dynasty. 
but in the 18th century, the tile industry there declined and came to a total end. Afterwards, different centers carried on the traditions of the Iznik tiles, but none could come to the quality of what was produced in Iznik because it was a profession or a task that a master taught an apprentice. That chain came to an end. So bottom line, if you want to see the the greatest Iznik-style tiles... You You do it in Istanbul. Istanbul. And I would imagine that would be in the Topkapi Palace would be a good place. The best I would list as the Rustem Pasha's mosque along the Golden Horn. Huh, okay. Then comes the Blue Mosque and the Topkapi Palace. Let's talk about the Topkapi Palace. We talked about the Domitbachi Palace, but that's 19th century, and that's more modern mm-hmm. and more European style. Mm-hmm. But when you go to the Topkapi Palace, that you feel like you're going into another world. How can we best appreciate the Topkapi Palace? What I can say is that Domitbachi Palace is an eclectic palace with Turkish elements and European architectural elements. Topkapi Palace is an Ottoman palace. What makes it stand out so differently is that Ottomans or Turks previously, before they established themselves in Asia Minor, they were nomads living in Central Asia. They lived in tents, and the tents were organized around the tent of the chieftain. And when you go to the Topkapı Palace, it's a concrete structure, but it's a concrete tent. You see buildings organized around courtyards as if they are tents circling a central location. So there are courtyards, and around them there are the buildings. The same thing. Nothing has changed, but only the material. And life in the Topkapı Palace, when you talk about a palace, people always imagine fancy furniture, fancy silverware, flatware, chandeliers. There are none in the Topkapı Palace because that's not how you live in a tent. You would live on the ground, spreading good, well-made carpets, and you would sit on the divans. Once upon a time... The divans in the tents were the mattresses that were folded up during the day that were tucked to the sides of the tents. But in the top couple palace, well, okay, they built the divans to sit in the corners of the room, but the palace is a concrete tent. You just straightened it all out for me because when I go to the Domobachi Palace, it feels like a European king could live here. When I go to the top copy palace, I feel some royal nomad just parked his camel and he spread his uh, low-lying sofas around these divans, and they're just gathered as they would in a tent. That's what it feels like, exactly. And the other thing fascinating about the Topkapı Palace is that it was not only the residence of the dynasty, the, the Ottoman family members, but it was the seat of the government. It was the capital hell. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been imagining the wonders of Ottoman Turkey, which was for six or seven centuries really a, a dramatic empire. It was a grand empire, capital in Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, and Lali Sermon Aran has been our tour guide. Lali, give us one little last stop where we can feel really the magnificence of the Ottoman age. Where would we go and what would we look at? Go to the Golden Horn, walk over to the Galata Bridge, turn to the old town, and immerse the view. That's and it. the Bosphorus. So the Golden Horn is this beautiful bay that, that splits Istanbul in two halves on the European side. Cross the bridge towards the European side, Look back and you'll see this skyline just sparkling with the wonders. That is my favorite view. Of the Ottoman and Empire. the Bosphorus is part of it. Oh, it's just great. Lolly, thank you so much for this peak at Istanbul. My and pleasure. the Ottoman Empire. Thank you. Merhaba. An Israeli-Palestinian offers hard-won advice for healing cultures in conflict in just a minute. First, here's some travel haiku written by our listeners about their trips to the Middle East. 
Tony Hunter, Del Mar, California, wrote this Persepolis-inspired haiku following a graduation trip across the Middle East. Petra, 65, rode on horseback through canyon. Not one tourist there. Teresa Jansen from Port Townsend, Washington, describes the feeling you get on an evening tour of Ephesus, Turkey. Ruins throw shadows across silent Roman stage. Moonlit nights, ghosts play. She also describes the waterfalls at Pamukkale, where she unfortunately didn't have time to linger. Turquoise pools cascade or milky travertine ledge. How I long to wade. And Dina Taylor from Socal, California, noticed a variety of what you might call fashion statements on a family she observed in Turkey. Mom covered head-toe. Dad in Western clothes with cap. Girl shirt. Wild woman. Imagine growing up an angry kid in Palestine, throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers. Then... You learn to speak Hebrew, and you realize that by crossing a wall and getting to know the realities of your enemies, your enemies also get to know you. And the result? You make the world a more peaceful place. That's the story of Aziz Abu Sarah, a former Palestinian radical who now uses tourism to bring people together in our world's troubled corners, from Israel and Palestine all the way to Colombia. His story and vision is laid out in his book, Crossing Boundaries, a traveler's guide to world peace. Aziz, who's dedicated his career to making travel and tourism a force for peace, joins us now to talk about the beauty of building bridges instead of walls. Aziz, welcome. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be with you here. The power of your message is just so important. First of all, just your your story, your personal story is inspiring. Tell us about how you went from a little kid uh, thinking throwing rocks was cool to somebody who could actually empathize with people who are supposed to be your enemies. Yeah, I grew up in Jerusalem in one of the worst times probably in the conflict. I was a bored kid, but also a lot of bad things were happening around me. And I remember at six, seven years old, meeting with my friends and watching television, we saw guys throwing rocks. And so uh, we went to throw rocks at cars when you're seven years old, you don't know who's your enemy. And so first time we threw rocks, we threw rocks at our neighbor's cars. The problem with throwing rocks at your neighbor's cars, they know where you live. So eventually we figured out you have to throw rocks at people who don't know where you live. And that's when we went to the main road and threw rocks at Israeli cars and eventually soon after ended up being shot at. And when you're a little kid getting shot at, you, you think you're invincible. You don't, it's terrifying. Hmm. But you think nothing will happen to me. Eventually, soon after my brother was killed, he was arrested on suspicion of throwing rocks and beaten up in prison, which caused him injuries that caused his death. Soon after he was released from prison, I grew up very angry, very bitter, very much determined to revenge for his death. And for eight years, that was my life until I was 18 and I went to study Hebrew not because I wanted to, because I had to. If you're in Jerusalem, you, you must learn Hebrew. And it was in that Hebrew class that for the first time I met Israeli Jews as friends, as fellow students, not soldiers, not settlers, not somebody with a gun, and realized that this world that set us in this reality where it's us versus them, 
we're not doomed to live like that. We're not doomed to hate each other and fight each other and realize us is really whoever is willing to work for peace, for justice, for coexistence. And them is the people we're trying to convince to join us in that Whoa, mission. Oh, that is fundamental. Going from us not being my tribe and that tribe, but us, people who see we need to get together versus them, people who don't understand that. Right. And today my my co-founder of Mejditors of my company is is an American Jew. And when when we first started working together, I cannot tell you how many people would meet with one of us and say, are you sure you want to do a yeah. business yeah. with them? And my, my business partner is, is like my brother to me. It, it's yeah. this reality of us and them is ridiculous. Like, oh, if you partner with somebody who's Palestinian or if you partner with somebody who's Jewish, it'll be all good, but you can't partner with the other. And again and again, it's through the last 20 years where I've been going through this more than 20 years through this transformation I've seen that this us and them never depends on a tribe and religion yeah. and color and nationality. It's it's constructed narrative of us. Aziz, I felt that very strongly when I was in the Holy Land. I was traveling in Israel and I was traveling in Palestine and I met a lot of younger people that were doing very creative things to bridge the wall by connecting with each other and having different reasons to be together, whether it was political or peace-oriented or, or not. And it was almost like they were counterculture because they were seeing us as, in this case, it was younger generation, entrepreneurial, creative people that wanted to get beyond their parents' baggage and the um, the conflict and just saw very constructively that they could have a future working together if they could just uh, be allowed to. I, I agree. And I think that's why there are people invested in building walls between us. And I don't mean physical walls. I mean, walls of fear, walls of ignorance you are told to, to be terrified of the other. You can't reach out. You can't have a conversation. You can't see each other. Israelis and Palestinians legally have so many checkpoints and walls that stop them from connecting. And the wall, the unintended consequence of the physical wall is maybe the intended consequence, but for me it was very powerful, is that especially young people can't talk to each other. Uh, it was so powerful for me with my guides. I had a wonderful Israeli guide and had a wonderful Palestinian guide and we could hardly find a place to park their cars so I could go from one car to the other because they were so carefully divided. You're absolutely right. And that's why there's so much need for people to cross boundaries. There's so much need for people to see that the other is not as scary. The other doesn't right. want to kill right. you. The other doesn't hate you. You were in Israel at the moment of silence on Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, and you wrote about that in your book, Crossing Boundaries, very very vividly. Tell us what that experience was like to be in uh, Israel, and uh, all of a sudden the whole country is silent on the Holocaust Memorial. Right. I remember, I remember it very, very vividly because I was terrified. I was crossing basically from my side to, quote-unquote, the other side, and it was walking distance. It wasn't, you know, I'm not talking about like taking a plane or taking a car ride. Mm -hmm. It was so close. And as I was walking to my Hebrew class, the siren started, which is, uh, you know, to commemorate the Holocaust. And everyone just stands still. People stop their cars in the middle of the street and stand outside and just stand still. And I heard the siren and I saw that all these people suddenly standing and not moving, not talking. 
and I had a panic attack. I was sure there was like an alien attack that's controlling everyone's mind. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of sci-fi. I'm like, sci-fi is becoming real. And I literally started running because I was terrified into my classroom. And by the time I got to my classroom, the siren had stopped and my teacher could see my anxiety. And I, I asked her what, what was going on. And she explained to me. And I was in shock. I lived in Jerusalem all my life. Mm -hmm. I've heard those sirens before, but I never knew what they were for. And in East Jerusalem, nobody really does. And I could imagine the people who saw me running yeah. probably assumed I have no respect for the victims of the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just terrified. Aziz Abu Sarai is a National Geographic traveler with a reputation as a peace builder. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Aziz co-founded Mejdi Tours, which provides dual narrative guided tours to explore multiple perspectives and meet people living in conflict areas. Their destinations include the Middle East, Latin America, the Balkans, Northern Ireland, and parts of the United States. Aziz recounts more of his experiences in creating cross-cultural connections in his book, Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. There's more about Aziz and his work, including his TED Talk, on his website at azizabusara.com. We'll also provide links to Aziz in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Aziz, can you tell me a little bit about your work as a tour organizer? Um, because you're taking the lessons you learned growing up in uh, divided Holy Land and uh, taking it international. Where are you employing these lessons, and how do you do that with your tours? Because I understand you're working in many countries. Yes, we are. We're working in 20 different countries. And what we're trying to do is help people cross those boundaries, those bridging those gaps uh, in places like Israel and Palestine by having, instead of one tour guide, having two tour guides, one Israeli and one Palestinian working together doing the two narratives together, not just the two narratives of politics, but the two narratives of history, archaeology, religion, uh, culture, music, art, you know, all mm. those things. Doing it in places like Northern Ireland, where I work with uh, people who come from nationalist and loyalist background, Catholic and Protestant, working in places like uh, Serbia and Bosnia and Croatia, working with Serbian and Bosnian guides who can co-guide at the same time. And in many of these places, not every destination can have two tour guides like this, but mm -hmm. especially in those destinations, we're trying to say there's more than one story and we should listen to every story in the places we are visiting. We should hear the voices we often don't hear. I'm so committed to the notion that if there's a wall, you cannot understand the wall unless you hear both narratives. And that means somebody from each community. And a great example of that is Ireland. For many right. years, I've been going to, you know, Belfast. And, you know, you get in a black cab and you get one person to drive you around. And it's usually somebody from the Catholic community or the Protestant community. And you get their perspective. And it's fascinating, but it's not balanced, even if the guy's a really good guy. And now the, the, the trendy tour companies uh, are just doing it much better. They have a, a Catholic driver show you the Catholic community and a Protestant driver show you the Protestant, and you hear both sides. And I wanted to ask you when you brought up Northern Ireland, because that's the obvious sort of um, sister's you know, problem compared to Palestine and Israel. It's just uh, when you have people who are planted in an area and then two competing communities, you have trouble. And 
it's not really a religious struggle, even though it's Protestants against Catholics, because it's really loyalists to London versus people who want Ireland to be independent, and they just happen to be, because of history, Catholics and Protestants. Do you know what I mean? You're absolutely right. Uh, I used it because in many of my conversations when I was there, the locals also used it. And oh, even yeah. though it's not a religious conflict at all, it mm-hmm. somehow ends up manifesting in the language. You know what uh, surprised me in Northern Ireland is how much the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is manifested. Oh, you see Palestinian flags in the Catholic communities and you see Israeli flags on the on the flagpoles of the post offices in Protestant communities because yeah. they really have an affinity for each other's struggles. That is fascinating when, when you do see that. You know, you also work in South America, I understand, and I, I guess there the, um, the divided communities would be indigenous communities versus uh, colonial communities. Is that right? There's a quite a few different narratives there. That's definitely one of it. The Issues around indigenous communities, issues around Afro-Colombian, for example, in Colombia, the Mm. African groups that Mm -hmm. ended up in Latin America, Um, issues around the uh, social or economic injustice, which ended up leading to all kind of violent gang groups uh, that organize. And we try to meet with all of these voices when we are, I can tell you in Colombia, for example, we meet with former leaders of these crews slash gangs who are now working in tourism, um, trying to be tour guides Mm. instead. We Mm. meet with people who are from indigenous communities and talk about the challenges and opportunities and things they are doing. We talk to people from the Afro-Colombian community, which is a large community, an amazing community, and has a culture that's very different and fascinating. And often when we go to these countries, I think one of the things I found that bothers me, we go to a place like Colombia and we assume there's one culture, Colombian culture. And yet in every place I've been to, there's more than one story. There's more than one culture. There's more than one narrative. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one against the other. It's just the places we visit are much more diverse than we let to believe and there's more than one story. Or worse yet, and I picked this up out of reading Crossing Boundaries, your fascinating book. You know, we travel all the way around the world to the beaches of Thailand, or, or we go down to south of the border in Mexico, and we take photos of each other from our tribe, who happen to be in the beach resort, and never venture a 10-minute walk inland to find out who are the real people there. It's a lost opportunity, and as travelers in an ever more divided world, it's an opportunity we don't want to miss. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Aziza Abu Sarah, and his book is Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. Aziz, a big part of your book, Crossing Boundaries, is tips on ways to connect and and make positive change through these experiences. And one thing you talk about is diversifying your travels. Um, we're just running, we only have a few minutes, but can you review with me your ideas on, quote, diversifying your travels? Yeah, I think often when we travel, we kind of we got socialized to believe that travel is one thing, and there is so much more. There is not just the, the sites that you can go to. There is people you can meet. There is religious sites you can visit. There is communities you can connect to. There's cooking classes you can do. There are... There are different narratives you can hear. If we step out of our comfort zone while we're traveling and we try to connect with one of those things or 
two or three of those things, you're going to get so much more. And like, you can do that at home. You don't need to even go far away. You can travel while in your own town, your own village and have amazing experiences as fun and as entertaining and as fulfilling as it is when you go far away. Now, well-meaning travelers can sometimes fall into unfortunate uh, niches in their style of travel. And, And you, in Crossing Boundaries, you talk about avoiding voluntourism and avoiding poverty tourism. Uh, Just briefly explain to us what are the pitfalls there and what are the constructive alternatives? So first, when when I go speak about tourism or about some of my experiences, for example, with refugees where I've done that in my conflict resolution work, people will come to me right away and say, I want to go and volunteer with Syrian refugees in Jordan or in Turkey. And my advice often, if you want to volunteer elsewhere, start at home. Because if you've never volunteered in your life, it's probably not a good idea to start in a different country where you don't know the culture, you don't know the language, you don't know much about it. Why not help first in your own area, learn about volunteering, and then think about doing it elsewhere? When you are doing it elsewhere, you have to check. I would say first check your motives, why you want to go and help far away. Is it just because it sounds more glamoring or there is other reasons for it. Mm -hmm. You really want to help that community. You've been moved. Um, And then is your volunteering helping or hurting some, some locals? Are you getting people to lose their jobs because you are going and volunteering as a teacher in certain school? Uh, I think also volunteering is about how do I help a community the way it wants to be helped? Not how do I want it to be? That's so important. Aziz, I just think it's so um, exciting what you're attempting to do by inspiring people from your life experience to make travel a force for peace. I would imagine you get examples of ways your book has had an impact on people all the time. Can you share one that comes to mind as we wrap up our conversation? There are many, and my goal of writing this book was to get people to think about how to travel anywhere, not about where to go. And today I got a phone call from a traveler that said she was traveling in the British Virgin Islands, not an area I've done any work. And she said, but through her whole trip, she was thinking about what stories should I ask about? What are the people who normally you don't hear about? What are the issues that are not common? And because of that, she was able to meet individuals, to ask and get people to invite her to things. And she became almost like an investigator, just asking all these questions and learning. And today she called me to say, thank you for giving me those questions through the book so I can go and ask them and learn about issues I would never have thought about. You know, Aziz, your book, Crossing Boundaries, is sort of the antidote to the conventional instructions and wisdom of tour guides all over the world. Don't talk politics, don't talk religion don't help people have a transformational experience. What we're promoting is people getting out of their comfort zones, asking the hard questions, talking not to the person representing a cultural cliché on stage for tourists, but really meeting people and changing the world by lacing us together. Aziz, thank you so much for your work and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. 
We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out more about our guests and listen to interview extras at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a community of well-traveled friends who love sharing tips and comparing notes. That's our online community. It's called the Rick Steves Travel Forum. You can read trip reports, reviews, and share itinerary planning questions. Peruse the topics or post your own submissions. It's at ricksteves.com and you're invited.